Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Well, with winter nights approaching, it's the perfect time to curl up with a good book. And today we have three extremely popular New York Times bestselling, award-winning authors joining us. We'll hear from number one New York Times bestselling author Marie Lu, a Chinese immigrant who learned English by writing stories. She's now a multiple bestselling author with a film deal underway, and we'll learn more about that in just a moment. We'll also hear from 16 times New York Times bestselling author Lisa Anger about walking the tightrope between writing literary novels and commercial genres. And closing out today's show, award-winning storyteller Lou Burney on why his latest thriller is described by many as a thriller that defies categorization. One of those books that doesn't belong in a box. So my first guest is Marie Lu. Her background uh, is really interesting, so I'm going to bring her on really quick. I'll just tell you that she uh, had a number one New York Times bestselling uh, hit with um, uh, the first book in this series. She's got over 3.3 million books in print. Uh, she's been dubbed a hit factory by the New York Times. And all three books in both of her blockbuster series, Legend and The Young Elites, were New York Times bestsellers. And she's had rave reviews all around. So looking forward to talking. Marie Lou, welcome. Hi, Vicky. Thanks so much for having me on. Very welcome. I'm sorry, I keep stumbling over your name there because I have a friend named Marie Lou. <laughs> and <laughs> your name no is worries. Marie Lou. <laughs> um, so I want to just uh, share a little of your background with our listeners first because you had uh, an interesting background with Disney when you left uh, university. So tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it all happened kind of by accident. Um, when I was going to college, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I I was uh, majoring in political science. Um, I had gotten to law school. I thought I was going to go, and I could just kind of tell that it wasn't for me. So I remember in my senior year, just walking around campus, feeling very you know emo and sorry for myself. <laughs> uh, and I walked past this kiosk that had. Um, a bulletin from Disney Interactive Studios. They were looking for um, artists interns who were interested in video games to work in their field. And I had always loved video games. I had lo loved art. I loved writing. I was kind of like a, you know, I loved the creatives um, growing up. And so I saw that and had this moment of, you know, serendipity where I was like, you know what, I think this is, this might be interesting. So I applied for it and got in and ended up working in video games for about five or six years and um, it's very much influenced my writing so um, so I'm very glad that I saw that kiosk well they say nothing is wasted right because when <laughs> when you've yeah. done different things in your life people often say well that was a waste of time but nothing is ever wasted because it often leads to something or informs something else so right so why did you decide in <laughs> this series the wildcard series to um, incorporate what you'd learned in the in the gaming world what? yeah um i knew that i i i had always been interested in writing something set um around a game you know it's such a big part of uh, my past and my interest when i was a kid 
I just knew I wanted to write something in that realm. And I've always also been interested in technology in general, um, just observing, you know, how quickly technology moves and how it changes our lives so quickly. So it was always kind of in the back of my head. And I think after I stopped working in the industry, I just kept thinking about it and reading the news and keeping up with what was going on. And once, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality kind of came into the mainstream news, I, I had an inkling of what I wanted to write um, for the Warcross duology. Right. And so um, your husband is your first reader, I understand, on all of your books. <laughs> he is, yeah. We actually met at Disney, so <laughs> it worked out. Yeah, yeah. And so um, it, your books, this is classed as young adult, but um, I suspect many adults read this book too. <laughs> I, I hope so. I read a lot of YA myself, so it's definitely not limited to um, a certain demographic. Yeah, because I think sometimes young adults, it really is for young adults and some cross over, you know, and I think of Harry Potter. I remember when that mm-hmm. came out, my mother was actually in hospital and Almost every every person in the in the ward, and they were like fifty plus, uh, you know, years age. They almost everybody was reading Harry Potter at that time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so tell us a little bit about the story itself, um, and and where you what got the concept for it. Sure. Um, the the first book is Warcross, and the second book is Wildcard, which just came out. And um, it's set in the very near future, so pretty much present day, uh, and follows a game called Warcross that has taken the world by storm. So everyone plays this game. It's a game based in virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, and just about, like it's a global you know, phenomenon, and so everyone plays it. Uh, it was invented by a 13-year-old boy named Hideo Tanaka, uh, who is 21 as the story opens. And Warcross really revolves around a, uh, an 18-year-old girl named Amika Chen who lives in New York City. She's kind of, she's a bounty hunter and a hacker, and she's kind of um, just scraping by on her own. You know, she doesn't have relatives. She doesn't have friends, really. She's just trying to survive on her own. Um, but, you know, bounty hunting and hacking are not exactly the most reliable <laughs> forces of income for her. So, you know, she's a huge Warcross fan. She's obsessed with following news about Hideo. But, you know, she's kind of down on her luck. She's got $13 to her name as the story opens and pretty much nothing else. She's got $6,000 in debt and she's just kind of about to get evicted from her apartment. You know, things are not going well for Amika. And uh, so in desperation, she hacks into the opening ceremony of the International Warcross Championships uh, in an attempt to make a quick buck um, and then accidentally hacks herself into the tournament so the next day, so everyone sees her go into this game, and the next day she is on every newspaper. Like every headline is like, "Who is this person? Who is Amika Chen? Um, Warcross has never been hacked. You know what's going on?" And so she, there's like a crowd of reporters in front of her house, and she gets a phone call from Hideo himself, who um, who asks her, "Hey, I have a job offer for you. Um, would you like to hear more?" And from there, her life just goes completely off the rails, and she gets swept up into both the the glitz and glamour of the um, of the Warcross world, uh, and also the game, and and that kind of seeks into uh, Wildcard, which is kind of the the edgier of the two books. It, it covers the 
you know, everything that can go wrong in this technology and mm-hmm. all of the dangers that she has to face and how she um, has to go about navigating this new space. So that's a little bit about the series. Um, and it's, it's really very, yeah. very timely, too. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, um, it's science fiction, technically, but it's not, but it's not really, um, because it, it is so close to what's happening today, you know, in our world. Um, all of the technology is pretty much here, you know, we, there's not much of it that's fiction anymore. There's, there's, um, there's like a real life correlation to pretty much everything in the book. Um, right, right. Both uh, the glamour and the, the dangerous side of technology. And we should say it's, uh, it opens in, in Tokyo, Japan. Why did you choose to set it there? Because that adds to the story, mm-hmm. I think. Thank you. Yeah, I, I um, wanted to pay a little bit of homage to Japan since um, gaming culture as we know it today pretty much originated in Japan. Um, and if, um, you know, I went to Tokyo for the first time several years ago and was just swept away by how different it felt, it, how futuristic and um, advanced and colorful and strange it, it all, all was. And I wanted to bring that sensation, you know, of the neon lights, the colors, the the sense that we are in the future to um, to the world of Warcross. So right. so that was the reason why. And I would also add that people don't have to be game fanatics to enjoy this story. <laughs> right. Like there's not really much in it that's super technical. It's all, you know, I'm not a hacker myself. So I, you know, I definitely didn't write it as if it was, a, you know, a, it's like a tech heavy book. Um, hopefully it's accessible for everyone. Right, right. So you've written uh, how many books in total now? I was trying to add them up, but it was a, I, I thought this was a trilogy <laughs> and it's a duology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wildcard is book number 10, actually, I, which I have a hard time believing myself. Right, right. And so after you had a uh, number one New York Times bestselling success, what kind of pressure, if any, did you feel after that? Um, I think that the pressure never really goes away. Um, I never really feel like I've, you know, arrived or like reached the top of right, my writing game or anything. I think there's always something that I can do better. And I can look back on all of my books and see mistakes that I've made or things I would like to improve. So mm-hmm. um, the pressure is always there to try to think of a better story and a better way of telling it um, to deliver to my readers. And I think with each book, it kind of gets harder. I feel like every book is a miracle that it ever happens. Um, you know, it's every, every book I'm like, Oh my God, I'm a fraud. Why am I doing this? This is never going to happen again. Um, how can I write another story? So, um, the pressure builds to, to make sure that I'm, you know, still delivering a good story for my readers. So that never goes away it just kind of becomes part of the game yeah I was going to say part of the job right I've heard many writers say that mm-hmm. they feel that fraud uh, fraud situation yeah. if you will you know it's like <laughs> imp- imposter syndrome that was the phrase I was looking for yes. when are mm-hmm. they going to find out I'm I'm not a real writer <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I read um, you tell me if this is true that you learned uh, to really storytell and, and write Eng- learn English because your mother as a Chinese immigrant made you write stories or yeah, she chose right. made you write a word or uh, tell us what happened 
Yeah, um, I came to the States with my parents when I was five uh, in 89, and we settled in New Orleans. And I remember at the time, you know, I didn't speak any English, um, and my mom would tell me to go to kindergarten every day and write down five English words that I didn't know uh, and come home and memorize them and look them up and put them into uh, paragraphs to so that I could learn. And so I did that, and, you know, I was five, so... I think kids just kind of adapt quickly to wherever they happen to be. And mm-hmm. I, you know, after I figured out the most enough of the language to know what to do with it, I realized that I just kind of enjoyed that process of putting together little stories for myself. So I started writing for fun and would, you know, staple together little booklets and write my name on it as <laughs> if it was like a book or something and just kind of pretend that I had all these little books out. Um, even though I, I had, you know, absolutely no idea how the writing industry word. I didn't know that books came from real people. Like I didn't know any of that until later. Right. Um, but it just became this really fun thing for me to do. I yeah. think that's really cool. Do you still have any of those? I wonder. I do. I have a couple. Um, they're not very good, <laughs> but it's fun to look back on them. They're full of like little doodles and, you know, like it's like that blue lined paper, you know? Right. Um, I, I think that's cool. It's where it all began, yeah. really, you know. Um, so I, I also read that one of your books, you have a film deal right now. Now, is that in actual in development or is it a very early stages? Where are we at on that? Yeah, there's um, there uh, there's a deal for Legend and for the Young Elites. And um, I don't really know where both of them stand, but they are both optioned by a different production company each. So fingers crossed that something can happen with them. I feel like Hollywood is, you know, it's kind of its own thing. And um, every movie that gets made is kind of a miracle too, because so many things have to align uh, for it to happen. But, um, but yeah, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Right, right. So as a writer, what was your, what was your career low point? What was your career high point to date? Because we, we know you're going to go on and have a long, long, long career. <laughs> Thanks. I hope so. Um, my low point was before I got published. I remember um, I, I, had written, um, I had written my second manuscript that I ever attempted and gotten an agent with it, a literary agent. And he started sending it out. And I thought, you know, oh, this is it. This is the one that's going to get published. And it didn't. It didn't go anywhere. It got rejected by like 30 publishers and, you know, never saw the light of day. And I remember that that kind of crushing feeling, that first, you know, big rejection mm-hmm. where I thought I had taken a step forward but actually stalled, you know, on that step. And and then I wrote a third manuscript that my agent really didn't like. So we separated ways and I, I was suddenly back where I started and just had this feeling of like, oh, this is, you know, maybe this is not for me. Like, I'm not meant for this kind of profession. And I stopped writing for a couple of years because of that. It was just, it was like the early, you know, the hard lessons of, of rejection that I right. learned early on. And, and it took me a while to get back into writing after that. And I think ultimately it was a good thing. Like it, it kind of hardened me to rejections later on so that I, they don't bother me as much anymore. But, you know, at the time it, it kind of sucked. Um, uh, and then eventually my, I think my fifth manuscript that I ever attempted was Legend. And that was the one that, um, that finally did get published. But it took a long while. And the high point, I mean, I, 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 I would say getting that first deal was still, it was still the high point. Like I can't, 
every single you know every single day as a writer is is a blessing i mean i still can't believe that i get to do this as a job and get to tell stories to to people um so i absolutely love it but that first you know that first moment where i was like oh i'm going to get to share my stories with the world it, it was just um life changing yes yeah. i should imagine you were on a high for quite a <laughs> quite yeah. a few days after that yeah. So um, I wish you great success with with Wildcard, uh, the latest. It's time for a rematch, they, it says on the front here. And um, I know it's getting rave reviews. It was uh, touted as um, one of the uh, most anticipated books, full books in young adults. So what, what's a final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Thank you so much. Um, I, I hope that readers of all ages and walks of life are able to find um, entertainment and maybe, you know, some, something to, to chew on afterwards with, uh, this series. It's, um, I think it's my favorite series that I've ever written. It's very me. There's a lot of myself in it. So, um, so I hope readers enjoy it as they find it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Marie Lou, number one, New York times bestselling author of, and this is called wildcard. Her new book is wildcard. You can find out more about Marie Lou at onetrueportal.com. Onetrueportal.com. Is that correct? There's not a... Yeah, that's the um, that's the, the home for my website. Yeah. So okay. you can also go to marieloubooks.com. Okay, marieloubooks.com. Thank yeah. you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Vicky. Thanks um, for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. And please stay with us. We'll be right back with Lisa Unger. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. There's a lot at stake this November. 36 governorships. 35 Senate seats. And all 435 House seats are up for election. If only 50% of voters show up, it would be the highest midterm turnout in a century. Learn more and get involved at IamAVoter.com. And don't forget to vote Tuesday, November 6th. Brought to you by I Am A Voter and the Ad Council. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping PAWS care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wildlife. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit PAWS.org or call 425-787-2500. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Sex therapist Dr. Tammy Nelson says there are many misconceptions about why a woman cheats on her partner. In the new monogamy, she argues having a discreet affair could be empowering 
empowering and even improve a marriage. And if you're one of the many feeling the growing gap between the haves and have-nots, it can leave you feeling less than. Jennifer Cohen and Gina LaRoche share how to ditch scarcity thinking and turn around your mindset. Join us Mondays at noon Pacific time and catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today conversations live with vicky st Clair. live well and live strong reach her great audience and advertise learn more at conversationslive.net bored with the other stations hammering away on the same old talking points try alternative talk 1150 and get some variety <laughs> welcome back everyone you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And as promised, we have three great authors with us today. So you can get some great full reading in. Uh, Lisa Unger is a New York Times and international best-selling award-winning author. Her books are published in uh, 26 languages worldwide. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, and Travel and Leisure magazine. And uh, she's joining us today to talk about her new psychological thriller under my skin. Lisa Unger, welcome. Thank you for having me, Vicki. My pleasure. So um, we've not talked before, so I'm very pleased to have you on the show. And um, I know that from reading your background, you have, there's never been a time in your life when you did not consider yourself to be, or you didn't define yourself as a writer. Is that true? that is true. I mean, I think you know my daughter is twelve, and she's been sort of doing her like sort of writing and art since she was a little kid. And so I kind of see that as probably being what I was like because i I don't remember ever not being a writer. Um, it's just always been I mean, we, I think of course, before that, obviously all writers are readers first. So I kind of fell in love with the story. My mom was a librarian. And so I had this, like, great, like, sort of love of books and story instilled in me. And then, you know, as a kid, we, tra- you know, I traveled a lot. My parents were moving a lot for my father's work. And so it was always the new kid, and I always kind of felt perpetually, like, kind of in the margins of things. And so, you know, the first place where I ever really felt at home, you know, or, you know, familiar were within, you know, the pages of a book. And so I feel like that is sort of like, you know, most writers start as readers and then right. we have a moment where we think right. wow if i can you know be so moved by somebody else's words can i also you know move somebody else with the you know the characters and stories and and you and know. you certainly do because you're you're getting rave reviews uh, on this book under my skin i, I just want to read a couple of them out and then i'd like to talk about them um about how this how you respond to these um, the Washington Post said you're adept at evoking the eerie, uh, but Unger's also capable of droll sociological commentary on the urban scene. Um, everybody said you have a gift for storytelling and creating great psychological thrillers. Um, the Sun Sentinel says her novels have explored deeper and darker parts of the human psyche 
and have drawn on unconventional storytelling. Anga skillfully keeps the reader off kilter. And I know from reading background that you, you have a real interest in, um, in this human psyche. So uh, talk to us a little bit about how you respond to those um, reviews, uh, all glowing reviews. I, I just cut a little bit out of each one. Um, how you respond to them and what is it about the human psyche that interests you? Well, I mean, it's always, you know, I mean, of course, like, you know, as a writer, you're never, you're never supposed to read your reviews, right? Like, it's not <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> of course, we all do. And, um, <laughs> and it's always, you know, it's always just very, I always feel very humbled and very grateful when I feel like somebody read something that I wrote and that they connected with it and, and, and wrote kind things about it. I mean, that's always, you know, like a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful feeling. Um, and, um, I, um, and I and it and it is true that like sort of my deepest you know most um, sort of moving curiosity is about human nature and the human psyche. So I feel like there you know that we know we know about more we know more about outer space than we do about our own brain. Mm. And you know as I see it, there are more questions than answers about you know human nature, what makes us who we are you know, what turns some people into heroes and turns other people into monsters. And, you know, there's just no end of questions that I have about the human brain, the mind, the psyche, the spirit, and how these things, like, sort of intertwine. And so, um, you know, I feel like probably all of my novels, you know, have sort of a deep questioning at their at their heart about, you know, what makes us who we are. Because, I mean, is there any more fascinating question or any more or any deeper mystery than the human mind i agree what makes people tick i i wonder about it every single minute of every single day (laughs) don't we all (laughs) um so i mean this has led to a very successful career for you though because you've you've applied that curiosity and poured it into your work and uh, research and work um you've been described as one of the most skilled practitioners of the psychological thriller um and yet you 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 are known for walking that fine line between literary novels and commercial thrillers, um, you know, while still hitting the New York Times bestseller lists and and getting critical acclaim. Um, how do you balance all of that? Because you you write all kinds of subjects. I you know I don't I don't really ever think of it as a as a balancing act, which is kind of I guess kind of a strange thing because the, you know those thoughts about. Is this a thriller? Is it a literary novel? Right. Is it, um, you know, is it a mystery? Is it a, you know, whatever all the different, like, sort of labels that people put on the work. You know, when you sit down to write, or when I sit down to write, there's usually just a voice in my head. And, you know, like, I, the germ for a novel could come from anything. It might come from a news story or a line of poetry. In one case, it was even a piece of junk mail. And then whatever it is, if it connects with something, I think, deeper that's going on with me, it generally leads me to sort of a raft of research, right? Like, I just get kind of obsessed about something and start digging into it and trying to understand it better. And then and then if it's going to be a novel, then I hear a voice or voices, and it's really those, those voices that I follow through my narrative. And so the intensity of the experience, for me, is just in the day-to-day writing of it and the following of those of those voices. And so there isn't a whole lot of thought on my part about what is, what kind of book is this? How am I going to balance X and Y and Z? 
there really isn't any of that. It's really just, you know, I'm like inside the story and, you know, looking out. So that's really where I dwell. And, you know, I think as the writer that that's where it's an important place to be because when you're in that other mind, you know, which I think of this sort of the marketing mind that, you know, the sort of the labels, the categories that, you know, what you hope for the work when it hits the world, then that's a very different mind than, than the one that creates the right. story. Right. I think every really successful writer, screenwriter, etc., that I've talked with has said the same thing that more or less that they, they really write for themselves. They write for, you know, the story they want to tell versus how the market's going to receive it. Right. I mean, because without that welling, it, without that, like, sort of belly of fire for what you're writing, like, there's no way to sustain the intensity that it requires to write a novel. Mm. You know, I have to be fully immersed, you know, heart and soul in what I'm what I'm working on. And that has to be the only question I'm answering, you know, is like whatever the question is at the heart of that story. The que- the other questions about, you know, uh, and it is it, the first draft especially is really you know, a hundred percent about you know the craft and the and and the magic and the union of those things. But then you know it's maybe the later drafts where you're like, okay, <laughs> does this work? You know, the later drafts are the first draft is for you. The later drafts are for your reader. Right, right. <laughs> so you can help take people along with you and make sure you you know you 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 brought everybody along on the journey with you, and it wasn't just your personal journey because surely you know surely it's a union. Yes. Between between those two things. Yes. So, Lisa, let's look at uh, this book, Under My Skin. Let's look at the story. Um, Poppy and Jack, are the the two people we hear about, first of all. So tell us, uh, in your own words, how you describe your story. Okay. So, well, Poppy, uh, when I first started hearing her, hearing her voice, Poppy Lang, she's a photographer, and um, she's a young widow. And it's about a year past the unsolved murder of her husband, and uh, she's really struggling. Um, she's had a breakdown um, from which she's recovered and is now just sort of um, trying to white-knuckle her way to a new normal in this world without, you know, her husband, the man she loved. So she's, she's terribly sleep-deprived, and um, she's messing with the dosage on her medication, which we all know these are, even just being sleep deprived is a bad thing. It starts to sort of color our perception of the world. And um, things really start to unravel for her when her nightmares kick up a notch and they start leaking into her waking life. Um, and they, these sort of factors really, um, you know, kind of break her very fragile grip on reality and uh, until she can no longer tell the difference between her reality, her dreams, and her memories. And so you, in uh, all of the material that came through, I saw this word. I, I meant to look it up, see how you pronounce it. Before you know what I'm going to oh, ask you. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, so the the seed for this novel was a a Carl Jung thought, which is um, between the dreams of day and night, there is not so great a difference. And it's sort of a simple sentence, but if you really sort of break it down, it has layers of meaning. And so I started thinking, between the dreams of day and night, there's not so great a difference. What does he mean by that? So it start, led me to start researching sleep, and um, I discovered that we spend about 229,000 hours of our lives sleeping. 
oh, more gosh. than a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming. Mm. And yet we're like totally convinced that, you know, our waking life is the real one and our sleeping life is the dream, the dream world. And um, so between those two worlds is a doorway called hypnagogia. And it's a liminal state. And it's the space where you have these very sudden, you know, um, dreams of falling or something leaping out at you from the dark and you, and you jerk awake. And I just became sort of fascinated, as I'm always fascinated, between, like, the doorway between things. You know, like how you're one thing and then you pass through this state of awareness and then you're another thing. So you're awake and then you walk through this doorway and you're asleep. Mm. And it's a totally different brain that you're experiencing. And so I just became, you know, kind of fascinated with that idea and, you know, with all the ideas about being asleep and, you know, what is the difference between our dreams and our waking life? You know, how fragile is our perception and our memories? And, you know, in that, like, sort of fascinated place digging into those subjects, that's when I started hearing the voice of Poppy Lang. And so um, what have you... I think with each new novel, you're going to learn a little something different and get deeper and deeper into your craft. Uh, you've had plenty of uh, experience at this now with 16 <laughs> uh, New York Times bestsellers. But what, what, have you, what did this novel give you that you didn't fully understand before or fully appreciate before? Um, I think that you know, for me, the, the thing that, that drives me in my work more than anything else is that I feel like every day, I can sit down and be a better writer than I was yesterday. And that's a very exciting idea for me, that, like, every single book can be better than the one that that came before it. And yet every book is the pinnacle of my ability at that time. Like, I literally wouldn't have been able to write a better book than the, like, certainly plenty of, you know, other people may have written way better books but like for me personally there was no better book right right right. so i have um you know that so every book i i feel like i'm you know when i sit down to write i feel like it's the first it's the first time in so in so many ways because it's a you know it's a new person writing it Mm -hmm. you know your life experiences change you and you know um I, I learned so much from the book that came before it that I feel like so ready to do, you know, to write an even better book this time. So I feel, and I feel this is, you know, the gift of Under My Skin and the gift of everything that came before it is that I learned so much every single time about about my writing, about digging deep into character, about, you know, honoring my writing time and, you know, making sure my heart and my mind stay in the story and, you know, hopefully under my skin made me a better writer and that every book before it did the same and right, right. every book that comes later will also do that. Right. Well, uh, book list says another fine psychological thriller from a master of the genre. You can find out more about my guest, Lisa Unger at lisaunger.com. A final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with Lisa. Um, can I be political? Go out, go go out and vote. Go out and vote. <laughs> go out and vote. Read the book and then go out and vote. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. And the book again. The book again. Under my skin, Lisa Unger.
All right, please stay with us when we come back. We're joined by Lou Burney. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, sex therapist Dr. Tammy Nelson says there are many misconceptions about why a woman cheats on her partner. In the new monogamy, she argues having a discreet affair could be empowering and even improve a marriage. And if you're one of the many feeling the growing gap between the haves and have-nots, it can leave you feeling less than. Jennifer Cohen and Gina LaRoche share how to ditch scarcity thinking and turn around your mindset. Join us Mondays at noon Pacific time and catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Mary Moss and Life Vantage Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, November 11th, it's a best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen in the studio. He's bringing his sister along, also a best practitioner, and together they can help with emotional, behavioral, physical problems for you and or your animal friends. So call in for your free remote to Martha Norwalk's Animal World Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. I'm voting in the midterm elections because my constitutional right, because my ancestors died. And to make it better for my children. The women before me fought. So we can remain free. Helping your community out. Midterm elections. I know every vote makes a difference. My opinion matters. I vote. I vote. I vote in the midterm elections. Register now on IamAVoter.com. And don't forget to vote Tuesday, November 6th. Brought to you by I Am A Voter and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Kathy Cooper, and every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m., I'll be hosting Lost and Found. We'll be discussing all types of losses, but it's not going to be the doom and gloom hour. It'll be an hour of education, support, validation, and yes, we will have a little bit of humor. So won't you join me Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., Loss and Found, because every loss matters, and through every loss, something can be found. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Alternative Talk 1150, local talk for the body, mind, and soul. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And uh, my final guest today uh, is Lou Burney. And uh, he's the author of three previous novels, Gut, uh, Gut Shot Straight, Whiplash, River, and multiple prize-winning The Long and the Far Away Gone. Uh, his short fiction has appeared in publications such as The New Yorker and Plowshares. And today we're talking about his new novel, which is open to absolutely great reviews. It's called November Road. Lou Burney, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Vicky. It's great to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. You were just saying you're you're just home now after quite a, a, an extensive book tour. So um, are you recovering or are you starting your next piece of work? <laughs> <laughs> well... I, I finished the November Road about a year ago, so I'm already I'm already pretty well into the next novel. But mm-hmm. I am recovering from the book tour right now. It, it took quite a bit out of me. It was a lot of fun, but it was very exhausting. Right, right. So how did you? Uh, let's talk about how you got into writing in the beginning, because that's always um, a, a point of interest for people. I think, um, you know, how did you begin writing? What were you doing before that? Uh, I studied journalism in college, but I discovered fairly quickly that I'm much better at uh, making things up than I am at reporting <laughs> them. So, so I, I, I shifted careers fairly quickly after college and um, and was writing short stories to get started. And then, 
you know, I've just always loved to tell stories. I come from a family of storytellers, my sisters, my mom, my dad. Uh, that's that's how we kind of communicated by telling good, funny stories around the dinner table. So I feel like it's always been a little bit in my blood. Right, right. Now, this book, uh, November Road, um, I've heard it described in several places as um, a thriller that can't be categorized. So it's been described as uh, strangers meeting to share the open road, um, a a dream of hope. I've heard it described as um, don't fall in love with a fugitive. Um, Everyone's expendable. Um, There are some unexpected connections, daring possibilities, the hope of second chances. How how do you describe it in your own word? I'm reading their uh-huh. words from uh, reviews. Right. Uh, when I was writing it, I just had in my head that I wanted to write a thriller and a love story. Those were the sort of two key components for me. There was going to be a thriller component of a bad man chasing people on the road and the other component of two people from different universes falling in love. And that's sort of how I stayed focused on on what it was really about. Right. An interesting story about how you got the idea of this. Uh, your brother-in-law uh, was the one who sparked the idea for this. So tell us how that came about, Lou. My brother-in-law is from a small town in southeast Kansas. Uh, and when he was growing up in the 60s, his parents told him, all the parents told all the kids to stay away from the next town over. Uh, which it turned out was a mafia cool-off town, a place where the mob sent uh, a guy after he killed someone to hide out or lay low. And I thought that would be a, a great idea for a novel. So that was the original spark of the novel. But but again, once I started writing, I realized that it was much better for me and for the characters to have them on the road, on the run, after after sort of the big crime. Right, right. So tell us a little bit about the story itself. Um, I I don't like to do that in case I give too much away. So in your (laughs) your own words, right? Uh, Well, November Road's about two main characters. One is a a guy named Frank who's a mafia lieutenant in New Orleans. He's he's a fixer. He's very charming, very likable. He he bribes people and pays off juries and sets up deals. And on November 22nd, 1963... He discovers he knows who really is behind the Kennedy assassination, which to his horror is his boss, Carlos Marcello, a real life historical figure who was the most powerful and dangerous mob boss in America. And Frank knows immediately he knows too much. And so he has to go on the run from this very, very dangerous man. And then the other main character is is in a universe away is a woman named Charlotte, who's uh, in a small town in Oklahoma, raising two young daughters, married to an alcoholic and sort of uh, stuck in her life, just not not allowed to grow as a human being in any way. And so after the Kennedy assassination, she decides the only way to change her life is to change it herself. So she packs up her little girls, leaves her husband, hits the road, and heads west uh, in the same direction that Frank happens to be heading. Right. And so when you were researching, uh, the, well, first of all, tell me why you wanted to incorporate incorporate the the assassination of President Kennedy. I know you wanted that just to be backdrop, not the main focus of the story. Well, the Kennedy assassination was always uh, important to me. My mother always claimed that I was born, uh, that I was, I'm sorry, that I was conceived the night Kennedy was shot. (laughs) Oh, God. And and I I did mention my mom was a great storyteller. So even though the math is plausible, (laughs) I'm not sure it's true. But again, as a kid, you grow up, that sort of takes on mythic proportions. And so it was always something fascinating to me. And I thought it would be a great background to explore 
a time in American history that was very fascinating, very tumultuous, and a lot of change going on. And I wanted to reflect that in the characters' lives as well. Right, right. And one little piece of uh, fascinating. I, I'd heard this before, but I didn't. I thought it was a story. I didn't realize it was true that um, you did a lot of research for this. You did a, a lot of uh, reading about the assassination of Kennedy and. During the autopsy, the, the brain was removed, as it often is, and, but it actually disappeared soon after that. And that's actually factual, you say. Yes, it's a, it's a fact, not a theory. And that shocked me because there's so many wild theories, but the facts are just as incredible. And, and yeah, Kennedy's brain was placed in a stainless steel canister with a screw top lid that was then put in the National Archives. And two years later, in, in 1966, it, uh, it vanished without a trace and no one knows where it is or who took it. So... You know, if you ever had a garage sale and happened to see a stainless steel canister, <laughs> you should probably snap that up. Yeah. And so um, the book is uh, part of the theme along this is is reinventing oneself. Do you think we can really reinvent ourselves? I'd like to think so. I mean, you know, I think uh, it's one of those one of those quintessentially American ideas that you can you can move somewhere else and become a new person. I mean, that's that's how our country was was born and how people populated our country by heading west, always west. And so, you know, I I like to think that you can remake your life and make it a better life and make yourself a better person. But I don't I don't know for sure. And when I was writing this novel, I wasn't sure what was going to happen to the characters if it was going to be a you know a tale of redemption or a tale of of destruction or or a mix of both. Right. So you don't outline before you just are you a panster, as they call them? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm the worst of both worlds. I'm the most inefficient writer ever because I do elaborate outlines, long outlines, detailed outlines. And then I end up changing probably 80 percent of it as I go along. And, and the story sort of takes shape. The characters take shape on their own. But I've tried I've tried just to pants it. I've tried just to plan it and neither works. So I have to do both. Mm. Well, one of the things that makes a good thriller is is a certain amount of tension and in the right places. And uh, there has to be that tension and that break where we can kind of recover a little bit and then more tension. How do you balance that when you're writing? Well, a lot of that comes in revision because I'll, I'll end up sort of writing a lot of very tense scenes and then in sort of a lot of scenes that, you know, are about developing relationships. And it's in the revision where I have to figure out like, what's the right balance? Like, where do we where do we cut away from this character and back to this character? So, and to me, that's like one of the most difficult and challenging and rewarding parts of the process is figuring out just how everything balances at the end. Right, right. And another question then, since you said that the end, balancing things at the end, but how do you know when a book is finished? Because it's such a subjective thing. Do you get to a point where you just know your story is complete for now? Or <laughs> how does that yeah. work for you? I mean, I think you're right. It's completely subjective. And for me, like I, I teach writing and, and I wish I had a rule. I could say that you should always end the book when X, Y, Z. And and but the, the truth is, it's just when it feels right. And so I'll end up writing several endings and they just don't feel right. So I keep writing and then that doesn't feel right. So I, it's all, a lot of trial and error until finally something just feels right. It's very intuitive. It's a very gut instinct for me. But um, I, I tend to know uh, very clearly when a book is over. Right, right. And so let's talk about characterization then. Frank, um, very strong character. How do you, multi-faceted, I think. So how do you balance that? 
Uh, character for me, it's really I have to hear their voice in my head, and I don't have any any sort of recipe for creating that um, that experience. Like I have to just sort of write scenes until the character's voice starts to resonate with me. And so Frank, for example, uh, started out with a very different voice, one that was um, not near as erudite, one that wasn't as funny, one that was flatter. And I thought it was going to fit him. But then as I kept writing, the, the, the voice that sort of broke through the noise um, and took over was something that I had not expected. And once I heard that voice, I had the character. Right. And so is it different when you're writing a female voice, like Charlotte uh, is, is his uh, sidekick, if you will? No, I think it's the same. It's, it's all about voice. And Charlotte's voice changed quite a bit, too. At first, um, you know, I, I discovered that she had a very sharp and witty sense of humor that I didn't ever expect from her. And that was sort of an aspect of, of her character that opened a door and allowed me to see her more fully. And so I think it's the same with almost every character that it's it starts with just how they sound and what they say in, in, in the voice. Right, right. So you've been writing for quite a while now. So is there can you tell us what highlight and the low point of your writing career? Oh, wow. Uh, well, the low light, I can tell you for sure, is uh, early in my career, I wrote a novel. It took me three years to write. It was rejected by every publisher in America. And <laughs> so I uh, so I revised it. That took a year. That was re rejected by every publisher in America. And so I wrote another novel for three years, and that was rejected by everyone. So, so there, I clearly I had several years of lowlights uh, of just sort of learning how to write a novel and 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 failing miserably. So, um, so what what kept you going during that time? Was it the fact that you were learning to write, as you just said, you saw it I as think, as learning? Yeah, I think it was that, but it was also just writing's the only thing I'm good at, and so there's nothing else I can do. So that's like it was just, just a sheer desperation. I had to keep writing. I had to keep at it because there's nothing I do well. Um, there's nothing else I do well. So so it was a lot of just understanding that persistence is a big part of what a writing career is. Mm. And I was lucky enough to be stubborn and I stuck with it. And um, I get that from my mother, who's very stubborn. And I, and I, and I value that very much. And so a high po the high point? Uh, high point, I would say one of them for sure is, is all the amazing reaction to November road. Like it's, it's incredible to, to read the reviews and, and, and hear the buzz about it. And one of the things I got to do this, uh, in May, the New York Yankees have a, uh, author program where once a, a month they have an author throw out the first pitch at Yankee stadium. And I'm a huge baseball fan, a huge Yankee fan. And I got to throw out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium oh. uh, this May, which was the most terrifying experience of my life. But once it was done, the most exhilarating. Yeah. Well, I just want to share with listeners who may not believe that you're not good at anything else, but writing that you say on your bio that between the ages of 12 and 19, you were fired from approximately nine different jobs. <laughs> yes. But I've not been fired since. So I just want to put that here. <laughs> oh, dear. And so, um, and also, you know, you said that your two older sisters like to play school with you, whether you liked it or not. So you, that's that's how you learn to read. And I that made me think of my brother because we would do the same with him too. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, good. I'm glad to hear I wasn't the only one. Yeah, I bet we I, we also made him sit down with a, a little china, you know, a toy china tea set and a plastic chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so think yourself lucky you escaped that I one. I do. I consider myself very lucky. <laughs> So um, what, what do you want people to know about November Road that we haven't already mentioned, Lou? 
I just, I mean, what I work for as a writer, my number one goal is to keep the reader turning the pages and enjoying the story and enjoying the characters and everything else is, uh, is house money. It's gravy. And so I hope people know it's a very enjoyable, entertaining read that I think also, I hope has some depth to it and some, um, some interesting themes. Yeah. Well, as I said, it's been uh, receiving rave reviews and, um, so I'll share the library journal here said wistful and complex Bernie's confident portrait of a roadside America traumatized by Kennedy's death gives the novel literary heft while the ticking clock of the mob closing in on the family to settle accounts lends a genre bite. Uh, excellent, uh, excellent uh, book, November Road. And I know listeners can find out more about you at uh, your website, which is louburney.com. And a final quick thought. Uh, just whatever you love to do, keep at it. Keep, All right. Be stubborn. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Persistence pays off, as as we've heard from both you, well, actually from all three guests today. So, Lou Burney, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. I love being here. Thank you. And the book again, November Road, uh, uh, Lou, uh, Lou Burney, my guest. And you can find out more about Lou and his work at louburney.com. And that brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you... Uh, at least picked one of these books out to read for, <laughs> for the over the full nights here. Now the dark nights are closing in on us. And uh, you can find out more about us at conversationslive.net. You can reach me at 800-495-7617, 800-495-7617. You can also find me on email at info at conversationslive.net. All right, that's it. Until next week, we'll see you then. Live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.